Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. He said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man was there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Today we are going to tie together some world events, including the situation in Israel and Gaza with Psalm 23 and our Gospel from Matthew. It's not hard to do. The usual disclaimer applies, I'm not an expert in the Middle East, but I am a person of faith and I read the news. Theologian Karl Barth said, it is the obligation of Christian pastors to preach with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. He wrote, take your Bible, take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. First time that I ever saw a city in ruins was when I was 16 years old. I was a sophomore in high school and I was on a four-week school trip sponsored by the German club. The year was 1988, one year before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So we traveled both in the former West and East Germany. Our trip started in Switzerland, then we traveled through Liechtenstein in Austria. We then stopped in Bavaria, where students stayed with German host families for a week. From there, we turned north stopping in the former concentration camp of Dachau, then further north towards Nuremberg, then east towards Leipzig, Dresden, and finally Berlin. I will never forget the city ruins still occupying the inner city of Dresden almost 45 years after the end of World War II. The once majestic Frauenkirche lay in rubble. The Frauenkirche is a Lutheran church in downtown Dresden, whose original construction was completed in 1743. It was destroyed by Allied forces on February 13, 1945. It would lay in ruins for almost 45 years as communist rule enveloped what became East Germany. 
Using plans from the original builder, George Baird, Dresden began its reconstruction on the Frauenkirche in 1992, three years after the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was completed in 2005 using mostly original stones. As a 16-year-old girl from Iowa, looking at these ruins was life-changing. Seeing the Berlin Wall was life-changing. Being interrogated by East Berlin guards as we passed through Checkpoint Charlie was life-changing. The reality of living close to or surrounded by a wall with razor wire and muzzled dogs was life-changing. The Frauenkirche in Dresden and countless other historical landmarks were either damaged or destroyed in World War II as the Allied forces tried to stop Hitler's spread of communism. It was only toward the end of the war that the Allied forces discovered concentration camps such as Auschwitz, Dachau, Bergen-Belsen, and dozens of others where Hitler had attempted his final solution of exterminating the Jewish race. After the end of the war, the state of Israel was founded in 1948 as a safe haven for Jews fleeing persecution and seeking a national home. Prior to the founding of the state, the region was called Palestine and it was occupied by people called Palestinians. In the years since then, determined never again to be a vulnerable people, Israel has created one of the most sophisticated defense systems of the modern age called the Iron Dome, which is an air defense system designed to protect against short-range weapons. Since the founding of the State of Israel, the former Palestinian occupants have been moved into two settlements, the Gaza Strip, and the larger West Bank. The Gaza Strip is a narrow strip of land wedged between Israel and Egypt on the Mediterranean Sea that is roughly the size of Washington, D.C. After the creation of the State of Israel, Egypt controlled Gaza for nearly two decades. Israel gained control of Gaza and the West Bank in 1967 after its victory in the Six Days War against its Arab neighbors. Over the next 38 years, Israel allowed for the construction of 21 Jewish settlements within its perimeters. Today, with over 2 million Palestinians living within 140 square miles, it is one of the world's most densely populated territories. Half of Palestinians living in Gaza are under the age of 19, but they have no prospects for socioeconomic growth and almost no access to the outside world. Despite pleas from the UN and human rights groups, Israel has maintained a land, air, and sea blockade on Gaza since 2007 that has had a devastating effect on Palestinian civilians living in Gaza. Founded in 1987, Hamas is one of the two major political parties in Palestine. Historically, the party has provided socialist services for the people in Gaza, such as education and medical care. Then the militant branch of Hamas took control of Gaza in 2006. The United States designates the entire political party of Hamas to be a terrorist organization. However, other countries, such as New Zealand, deem only its militant wing to be terrorists. Currently, Human Rights Watch likens the conditions in Gaza to an open-air prison. Referring to the rigid restrictions of movement Israel enforces on Palestinians from entering or leaving the area. By limiting imports and nearly all exports, Israel's 16-year blockade has driven Gaza's unemployment rate to over 40%. This is according to the World Bank. 
More than 65% of the population lives under the poverty level, according to the UN. 63% of the people in Gaza are deemed food insecure by the World Food Program. In the wake of the surprise attack by the military wing of Hamas on Israel on October 7th, conditions for civilians in Gaza are certain to become a humanitarian catastrophe. On Monday, Israel's defense minister announced a complete siege of Gaza, cutting off all electricity, fuel, food, and water to the territory. On Friday, Israel ordered an unprecedented evacuation of all Gazans in preparation for the impending ground attack. Most have nowhere to go. Hear me very clearly. I am not justifying last Saturday's surprise attack by Hamas on Israel, nor am I claiming to be an expert on the Middle East. Refer to my previous disclaimer. What has happened in Israel is evil and deplorable and horrifying. And what is certain to happen in Gaza will be evil and deplorable and horrifying. But it is important to know context. Context does not justify things, but it helps explain why people do what they do and why some of the things that are happening right now are happening. These things are not specific to Israel and Gaza. They are the same things that are repeated throughout human history around the world. Broadly speaking, whenever human beings are shoved into a corner, they will come out swinging. It's what prompted the United States to enter into World War II after Pearl Harbor. It's what caused Al-Qaeda to bomb the World Trade Centers on 9-11. It's what causes our southern border to stretch and swell, so much so that the Biden administration has committed to completing 200 miles of the border wall begun under the Trump administration, despite campaign promises not to do so. If there is a wall, desperate people will scale it. Cornered and threatened people always come out swinging. Hamas is attacking Israel for the same reasons Israel was formed in 1948. They're tired of oppression and they seek safety, security, and a future. The Allies bombed Dresden because we were bombed at Pearl Harbor. Our twin towers fell because bin Laden wanted us to stop intervening in the Arab world. Ukraine counterattacks because Putin claims its land is his own. As a mother of three boys, I know that 100% of the time, if a kid punches another kid, that kid will punch back. But who's to say what I would do, or you would do, if we were cornered and lived under a blockade with no prospects for employment? What lengths would I go to, both legal and illegal, to give my children bread? It's easy to say, thou shalt not kill, but how do I know what I would do if someone came after my loved ones? Under certain circumstances, maybe I would be a terrorist. Maybe you would be. These events unfolding in the Middle East and countless others around the world seem unrelated to each other, but they are very related because each isolated event catapults humanity into the valley of death as described in Psalm 23. Whether human-made, like war in Israel, Ukraine, or Haiti, or nature-made, like the earthquake in Afghanistan, or the floods in Libya, or the fires in Maui, 
All of these catastrophes end the same, with people begging for food and water, people crying over their dead, people searching in the rubble for their lost children. I absolutely understand the sensitivity and complexity of these topics today, but things are complicated. And it's helpful to understand the reasons why people do what they do. Again, not to justify, but to better understand who humans are and where God is in all of this. In the reading from Matthew, God isn't the king. The traditional interpretation is always to assume God's the king. God isn't the one tossing people out because they don't look right, because they aren't dressed right, or pray right, or love right, or live on the right side of the wall. God isn't the one with the finger on the nuclear button, or the one using nerve gas, or the one gunning students down in school, or on the streets based on skin color. That's not God doing those things. Those are humans. We cannot confuse human political agendas with God's justice. We cannot stack guns and our flag on the Bible. In this passage from Matthew, humans are the king. We are the king. We are the ones who say to the one not properly dressed, who are you? How did you get in here? We are the ones who make borders and build walls. We are the ones who cast the undesirable ones due to race, creed, religion, sexual orientation into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We are the ones who make it illegal for a man to love a man or a woman to love a woman. We are the ones who decide where poor people live. We are the ones who elect officials who strip women of reproductive rights. We are the ones who love to cast other humans into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But thankfully, God can work with that. So if we are the king in this passage, where is God? God, in the form of Jesus, is the wedding guest who is rejected and bound and thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is the one thrown out of the banquet hall, the governor's court, the king's palace. Jesus is the one who descends into the absolute darkness of hell and crushes it so that death is no more. Jesus is the one who walks first through the valley of death, leading the entire parade of humanity behind him. In Elie Wiesel's book, Night, when asked where God was in Auschwitz, he points to a body hanging from the gallows and he says, here is God hanging on these gallows. Whenever people are cast into the worst darkness, right into the valley of death, then and there we meet Jesus Christ. God takes our worst darkness and fills it with Jesus, who brings light and life to all people. Here is God with the Israelis who are being bombed and slaughtered, taken for hostage, cry out for revenge. Here is God with the Gazans who are also being bombed and cry out for food and water and warmth. Here is God in Ukraine's blackened and leveled cities, and here is God in Moscow where war protesters disappear in vans, never to be seen again. Here is God in Libya, Afghanistan, and Maui 
as civilians seek to rebuild their lives here as God in Uganda, where the LGBTQIA community daily fears for its life. Here is God on the Republican and Democratic side of the aisle as our own government is paralyzed to even function in the absence of a speaker. We believe God is on both sides of every conflict and catastrophe. Otherwise, we believe that there are places where there is no God, and we don't believe that. We believe God is everywhere, especially in the most terrifying darkness where humans weep and gnash teeth. Lincoln's second inaugural address occurs when our country is embroiled in the fourth year of the Civil War. He says, both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each side invokes God's aid against the other. The prayers of both cannot be answered. So then God can no more take sides in a war than God can choose a favorite football team. War is the work of humans, both just and unjust, which only depends on what side of it you're on. God's work is to send Jesus into this world to meet the entirety of humanity when it is at its most desperate and hopeless, when our cities lie in ruins and our children cry for bread. In the end, there are humans on both sides of every war, on both sides of every divorce, on both sides of a team, whether the game is won or lost. It doesn't mean that there aren't fights worth fighting. But it does mean that even in the face of gross injustice and violence, God's children are on both sides. Jesus was cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth in order to meet all of humankind and fill it with his light. In the darkest valley where death is all around, whether you are the invader or the invaded, whether you are the oppressor or the oppressed, whether you are on the inside or the outside, all humans eventually walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Some people here today are currently walking through the valley of death due to disease, depression, broken relationships, prejudice, various phobias, loneliness. There are times when we walk through valleys of darkness and fear, when we weep and beg for peace for the world, safety for our children, food for the table. No matter how oppressively dark, these valleys of desperation, fear, and hopelessness are precisely where we find Jesus. The darkness will not win. John 1.5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world who comes to our world in its deepest darkness, and to you in your deepest darkness. Samuel Rayan writes, A candle is a protest at midnight. It says to the darkness, I beg to differ. Amen.